Hey everybody, before we get started, um, just wanted to let you guys know that this episode is another of one of our ACPE accredited uh, continuing education episodes. Um, so once again, we have uh, partnered with Free CE um, by FarmCon to basically provide listeners the opportunity to claim one hour of home study continuing education credit um, after listening to this episode. So there will be a link in the show notes. Uh, make sure you follow that. And uh, use the password GLUCOSE in all caps, and um, that will allow you to take the actual exam. Once you pass that, you'll be able to uh, receive your credit. You do have to be a member of FreeCE.com uh, in order to actually get the continuing education credit. Uh, but if you are not a member, uh, if you use the the code uh, CORCON, so C-O-R-C-O-N-R-X, all one word, capital letters, um, and that'll be in the show notes as well. Um, and up through now until June 30th, um, 2021, then uh, you'll get 15% off the annual fee, and you'll be able to have access to not only our podcast episodes that are accredited, but also uh, access to all their monographs, live lectures, and everything else that they have on their website. So make sure you check that out, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Thanks. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to episode 146 of the podcast. Slowly approaching 150, Cole. Yeah. Getting there. That's halfway to 300. It, it is literally exactly halfway to 300, so that's good news. It is. Um, so we're going to have to think of something cool for episode 200. Oh, yeah. We had Dr. Wirt for 100. We did. That was good. What about our bicentennial? Whew, I don't know. There's not There's not really a way to beat Dr. Wirt. So Maybe we'll just have him come we'll back. We'll have him come back. <laughs> That'll do be, the same one. We be, don't even have to have him come back. We'll just release the same one Re-release again. it? Re-release. Yeah, that is a good idea. Now we're thinking. So um, today we are, like I said in the intro, we are going to uh, be going through um, the diabetes uh, injectable medications, and this is going to count for continuing education. Um, so we're excited about this. Hopefully, I know you guys are like, oh my gosh, they're doing diabetes again, but we're going to concentrate solely on injectable medications. Yeah, so, we're doing what we always say we're going to do when we're going to focus on a specific thing inside yes. of a disease state. And then we never end up doing that because we get sidetracked, but we're going to stay on task today. Yes. We're going to try our absolute best to do that anyway and uh, go through all the different... Um, injectable medications, the insulins, the GLP-1s. There's some new stuff. There is some good stuff. Um, and it's kind of uh, it's another way to help kind of excel your learning through this podcast. Um, I wanted to make sure I mention our sponsor for this episode, uh, which is Pearls. So Pearls is a drug reference for the next generation of healthcare providers. Um, and it's something that uh, allows you to learn quickly about commonly prescribed medications is a, it can be used as a quick reference, counseling points, clinical pearls, um, hence the name pearls, get it comparison charts and uh, more. You can find it at pearls.com and that's P Y R L S.com. Um, and then I also encourage you to download the mobile app, um, for iOS and Android uh, for limited time. Uh, actually, we don't even know if it's limited. It's probably going to be longer to be honest. Um, core consult RX listeners can sign up for free and download a 10-page diabetes pharmacotherapy chart bundle that is yours to keep. Um, you just sign up with your email, and the um, and Pearls will send you the 
10 page document to your email. And then, um, you can decide from there if you want to continue, um, you know, with, with pearls, you know, on the actual app and whatnot. So it's great. We've Cole and I've both been uh, using it lately and it's, we're going to actually use it through the episode it is to kind of reference some things. So, um, if nothing else, check it out and get your 10 page diabetes pharmacotherapy chart for free. So thank you so much to pearls for supporting the episode. Yeah, there you go. It's, um, it looks great. It's much better than anything I could have put together. Oh my gosh! Sure. Yeah, I realized how terrible I was at like anything artistic when well, the I colors started and everything. Looking. I was like, "Oh, yeah. this is so oh, good." It's great. Mine, mine would have been black and white. <laughs> mine would have definitely. That's why we're not uh, programmers and artists. Exactly. All right, man. So, where do you want to go as far as the actual so, content? So, injectables with diabetes. So, the specifically, we're going to focus on type two, but of course. Um, insulin which we'll talk about applies to type 1 and we'll reference some type 1 stuff as well um but it falls into two camps there's insulin and then there's glp1 um glp1 agonists those two so you want to start with the glp1s which are more specific to type 2 and then we'll talk about insulin um which of course is involved with type 1 as well and and i think that's a big kind of switch from the way we used to think about things i know like when i was in school i used to think if a patient's a1c was at baseline in the the double digits you know if they were 10 or 11 you know insulin was just the automatic option to to start with right um, however you know most patients will do very well with a glp1 receptor agonist um, if we start that even prior to insulin, you know, basal insulin and whatnot. Um, and in fact, for me, especially, uh, you know, with my type two patients, it's pretty much my go-to second line option after metformin. Mm-hmm. Um, even if their A1C doesn't need a ton of re- reducing, just because we have such good options in that class of medications now. And we'll talk about it a little bit when we go through them. But as far as ADA recommendations go, they say if you're, if you are very high risk for ASCVD or you have ASCVD, they recommend adding one of the cardiovascular, um, cardiovascularly beneficial GLP-1s regardless of metformin status, A1C status. And, you know, obviously, you know, I guess if there's definitely a point where you probably wouldn't want to use it, but they recommend using it just for the cardiovascular benefit itself. The, the important part about GLP-1s, though, is they are not all created equal. Um, and so, we're, and this is just something that we're basing this off completely so you know the data that's available and um, we'll quote the studies and whatnot but they they do have some differences between them other than just the dosing regiments and whatnot but they actually have different data different a1c lowering ability different weight loss Mm -hmm. Um, so it's something that's important to kind of you know know the differences between them because it it can really help you decide which route you're going to go when you're picking one of these right and um you know we tend to take strong stances on certain certain <laughs> things that we like if, if the data supports it right um but a good example of how we can evolve with data just like anybody else is when we first started the podcast you know we might have said victoza all the way and then you know um uh, ozempic was coming out we're like oh ozempic's going to be the next big one and then we got data for trulicity and, and that's like trulicity so you know we we might feel strongly about one being having stronger data than another but data is always evolving and new things can come out and so that's why you want to roll with the punches and stay up to date on whatever we think is the best yes but that <laughs> whatever, is to say that whatever there are, we think is the best. there are some good options that can you know are very reasonable, but then there's also some bad options where the data just wasn't all that nearly as good as the others. And so we're probably going to stay away from those. Yeah. So I guess just to kind of start out, you know, what is a 
GLP-1 doing? And if you've listened to our older podcasts or our case episodes um, where we've kind of walked through a patient case regimen, um, you'll probably, if this is review for you probably, but that's okay because there's a lot of different mechanisms at play when it comes to GLP-1 receptor agonists. Primarily, we think about a uh, like it kind of stimulated um, insulin response to a patient um, consuming carbohydrates. So the difference between like exogenous insulin, uh, when that's injected, you know, the patient obviously then immediately has their blood sugar lowered. And when you're talking about like prandial insulin, you know, if that's not timed correctly with meals or something like that, you know, they could really have a, a risk of a hypoglycemic event. With GLP-1s, you know, they really only start sort of kicking in for lack of a better word when uh they actually when the person actually consumes carbohydrates and then once it brings you down to a certain level that's kind of you know where it keeps you and it doesn't that going to bring you lower um so the risk of hypoglycemia is very um low compared to something like insulin or some of our oral agents like sulfonylureas which we can't overstate the importance of that because hypoglycemia is a huge concern especially with the older um glucose lowering agents absolutely um, so we're going to get that um, the beta cell insulin release whenever the patient consumes carbohydrates. And then the other piece of that is we're going to also you know, inhibit glucagon secretion. So when we inhibit glucagon secretion, if you think about, you know, insulin and glucagon are what keep each other in balance. So if the insulin starts to level start to go up, the natural response of the body is then to increase glucagon to balance that insulin uh, back out again. Well, when glucagon is there, you're going to have uh, processes in place like gluconeogenesis, glycogenolysis, things like that, that can increase your your uh, glucose content in the in the blood. And so we want to suppress that glucagon so insulin can be allowed to hang around longer and and you know do its do its thing. So um, you're getting that glucagon suppression and the insulin release at the same time. And just to kind of throw this in here, you know, if you, if you ever see someone who has type 1 diabetes that is on a GLP-1 um, in addition to their insulin regimen, if you're confused by that, because obviously in a type 1, you're not going to get the insulin release from the beta cells because those um, have been destroyed at that point. Um, but the glucagon suppression is really where the benefit lies with the GLP-1s in a type 1 diabetic. Now, these aren't approved for type 1s. It's off-label. But um, the glucagon suppression allows usually the uh, patient to in, inject less exogenous uh, insulin over time helps with the uh, the weight gain over time. It's seen with just using insulin by itself. And so um, I've seen a few times now in practice where patients that are type 1s can get some real uh, benefit from having a GLP-1 added on as like adjunctive therapy to their insulin regimen. Right. So if you ever see that, though, that's what they're going for. They're, they're trying to suppress glucagon. They're not really worried about the insulin release piece of it. Similar thought process to, you know, metformin with um, insulin, where we have some data saying that you can decrease the insulin requirements um, when used with metformin and type 2s. Uh, and that just goes to say that insulin is great and, you know, fantastic as far as when, when it came out and being able to treat type 1 diabetics and then, of course, being able to treat type 2 diabetics well. But it has some undesirable uh, effects, which we'll talk about. So um, it's, it's kind of... Um, pretty much determined now that GLP-1s are preferred if possible and decreasing the insulin burden um, as much as possible to a safe extent is a positive thing. Now, the other kind of piece of the puzzle with GLP-1s is their ability to sort of 
deal with with gastric motility um, so you're going to decrease that gastric emptying after a meal um, patients often have their uh, decrease in their appetite um, they often have increases in satiety um, so there's that's going about by a couple different ways um, primarily it's it's like I said decreasing gastric motility helps with um, increasing like acid secretion as well as decreasing that gastric emptying but there's also uh, GLP-1 receptors in the hypothalamus as well um, that affect appetite so um, they actually decrease those um, pro-opioid melanocortin neurons or POMC neurons they decrease the firing of that which then you know, leads to that increase in satiety after a meal uh, and decreases appetite so it, it basically those four main mechanisms, and there's others as well, uh, including some cardioprotective um, properties as well, which we're going to talk about. But the uh, GLP-1s are coming at it from so many different angles that mm-hmm. you're really getting a, a solid benefit from. Right. So all that results in decreased glucose levels, lower A1C without hypoglycemia, weight loss, um, negatives being frequent GI upset, specifically nausea, um, which is something you definitely want to counsel patients about early on. Um, and then there's the concern for um, like thyroid cancers, which they've seen in mice, but I don't think they really have had any doc- documented cases in humans, but it's still something that they throw in there. Um, also, the which we're about to talk about the data for cardiovascular um, events, and the mechanism behind that is a little more unclear. Maybe it has to do with you know glucose control. Maybe it has to do with weight loss. Um, they also think it causes some endothelial vasodilation, which could decrease inflammation, um, and over time, you know, prevent cardiac events. Uh, but in some of the studies, they saw decreased cardiac events in a very short amount of time, um, where when they've, you know, looked at it, secondary prevention, um, from just a glucose control perspective, you wouldn't have seen a decrease in that short amount of time. So there's something else going on other than just the, the glucose control and maybe even more than just the, the weight loss and, and probably also why it's not necessarily a class effect where it's you know not only not causing cardiovascular harm, but we're actually uh, seeing benefit. So you know, the, like we said earlier, you know, not all of these are created equal. Um, so just to give you a couple differences, just in the, the dosing of these, uh, for example, exenatide or bieta, which is what the original GLP one receptor agonist, is a twice daily um, GLP one. Then we have Victosa. We've come so far since a twice daily GLP one, haven't for we? For sure. <laughs> and then we have uh, liraglutide, which is Victosa. We have lixacinatide, which is Adlixin. Those are both once daily. Um, and then our once weekly options, we have um, exenatide ER or bidurion. We have dulaglutide or trulicity, and we have semaglutide ozempic. Uh, we used to have albiglutide, um, which was tansium, but that mm-hmm. was removed off the market. For, sorry for those guys. Good old tansium. Good the old, one that you had to like set in a cup yes, upside down or something minutes. for 30 minutes. Yeah, you sure did. <laughs> it was very annoying to have to reconstitute it. Um, but uh, yeah, what are you going to do? Um, now, th- let's talk about just A1C lowering for a second. So when for when it was just Bieta and Victoza, those were the two main GLP-1s, obviously, because that's all that was the on the market. Then Victoza was clearly the market leader. It had more uh, attractive dosing regimen as far as once daily versus twice, and it also had better A1C lowering when it was compared to exenatide. Mm-hmm. Now, um, there was a study called Duration 6, which was exenatide ER versus Victoza head-to-head in uh, Which it was, was once daily, right? Extended ER. Extended ER was the once weekly by during. Oh, once weekly. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. And um, 
the, they were trying to show non-inferiority and superiority with uh, exenatide ER compared to Victoza for A1C lowering. Unfortunately, did not uh, meet the criteria for either one. So basically paid a lot of money to show that Victoza was a little bit better. And that's a dangerous thing to put class medications head to head. And that's why you don't see it very often. It's a risky thing for the um, drug companies to do. It is. But I do respect that. Oh, I'm all for it. It's, I think yeah, it's better for medicine. Good, good, good on them for I know, wish they would do doing it more, the right thing. I wish they would do it more often. Kind of like the VA is doing a big, which is not a drug company, but VA is doing a big study with um, hydrochlorothiazide versus chlorthaladone right yep. now. Um, but yeah, I wish drug companies, especially when they're branded, would do this more often. Yeah. Um, and then same with Tanzium. Tanzium was inferior to uh, Victoza for A1C lowering, which is one of the reasons why it was removed. Uh, and then the um, Trulicity came along with the uh, Award 6 trial and uh, showed that it um, was non-inferior to Victoza for A1C lowering specifically. Uh, Victoza still had better weight loss associated with it and um, whatnot, but uh, the Trulicity was kind of like the next, you know, generation that was also uh, efficacious and hit that um, A1C lowering ability um, like Victoza did, but mm -hmm. only once weekly. Yeah. And then uh, Ozempic came along, and that one has been compared directly to Trulicity. And um, Ozempic is obviously owned by the same company that has Victoza, so they don't they didn't do a head to head study with each other, but they did compare it to Trulicity head to head with the sustained seven trial, and uh, semaglutide was superior for lowering A one C. I think. The, if I remember correctly, it was 1.1 um, A1C reduction for Trulicity and 1.4 with um, Ozempic. So clinically, maybe not as impressive, but definitely still, you know, better considering uh, you know they were, it was a head-to-head -head trial. And the weight loss, which we'll talk about in a little bit, but the weight loss was definitely better with semaglutide. Um, and now that uh, it has the new 2.4 milligram version that has been just recently approved for uh, weight loss, we see some huge uh, weight loss ability with semaglutide specifically. I don't know what it is about that yep. particular GLP-1, but it'll make you lose some weight. Yeah, just as long as we're on that, I believe it's pronounced Wegovi, which I think is an interesting name. Uh, but in the in the trials, that you had to have a BMI over 30 or BMI over 25 with um, other risk factors like diabetes. And um, the patients, uh, about half of them lost 15% of their total body weight, and about a third of them lost 20% of their total body weight with that 2.4 milligram dose of uh, semaglutide. Oof. Pretty intense. Yep. Yeah. And then now we have oral, right? Rebelsis. Mm -hmm. Rebelsis. Um, we can't talk about that, Cole, because it's oral. We're only doing injections. Oh, shoot. Yeah. Well, Next we have time, it. Guys. you got to know that we have it. Oral oral semaglutide. You guys look up look up Rebelsis. We and can't you know, talk about it on this one. Back in the day, when I was coming through school, <laughs> it was pre-semaglutide days. And so the big one everybody liked was Victoza because we had leader trial and we didn't have the, um, the uh, rewind, right? We didn't have the Trulicity trial come out yet. And then we didn't have semaglutide. Um, and not that Victoza's fallen by the wayside, but it seems like with better data, the once weeklies are more attractive now. Yeah. So, you know, if, and we'll, and we'll go back to the rewind trial because it's important yes. to talk about. Yeah. But, um, you know, if you have a patient who, you know, they have type 2 diabetes, they have, especially if they have any kind of cardiovascular risk, um, you know, other comorbidities like hypertension or something like that, dyslipidemia, um, they, maybe they have a high elevated BMI. 
um, you know, when you're considering injectable therapy in them, then the GLP ones just make the most sense to, to start with. Um, it's not that insulin is wrong, uh, but when you have weight loss that needs to be accounted for, also the cardiovascular risk reduction that you get from a GLP one, it makes sense why the uh, ADA guidelines kind of push us towards a GLP one as the first injectable that we use. So um, that that would definitely uh, be a good option to kind of go with and they do straight up they say that comparing glp1s to insulin glp1s are preferred because of the weight loss benefit versus weight gain with insulin lack of hypoglycemia they, they prefer those first before you go to insulin mm-hmm. if possible so cole mentioned the leader trial and that's important because when these medications started uh, getting approved as well as like the uh, sglt2 inhibitors uh, the fda wanted them to do cardiovascular safety testing to make sure that there was no increased risk of cardiovascular disease with these medications because the older medications probably did have some risk insulins or sulfonylureas you know there's some concern for for risk and it's because what do diabetes patients frequently die of is cardiovascular events so they want to make sure that all these drugs are not only safe but possibly beneficial right Mm -hmm. and so all of these uh these medications that are in these both of those classes the glp1s and the sglt2s have undergone these uh cardiovascular testing um and and basically patients who are at risk for cardiovascular disease or um, maybe have had a secondary prevention patients you know the, the studies have all been kind of slightly different but um, they basically what they're looking for is hopefully no no difference from placebo when it comes to risk but they were surprisingly surprised yeah that's how you say that um, with victoza because in the leader trial which is their uh, Victoza's cardiovascular um, study, the leader trial showed that you actually had some cardiovascular risk reduction mm. with Victoza. And that was all the rage when I was finishing up farm yeah. school because people were like... And that was all the rage when I was starting farm school. People were freaking out. They were like, oh my gosh, we have something that can lower cardiovascular risk. Victoza is the end all be all. So that's what I was taught, just like Cole was saying. Yeah. Like, the, yeah, once daily Victoza, and even with the once weekly options, we're like, no, we want to convince them to do once daily because we have better data now. And, uh, but that's old news now. It, yeah, well, I mean, you know. It's we still, still good. It. It's yeah. still good. We, I definitely do still use, use some Victoza for sure, especially for our uh, patients that don't have insurance because we have some programs they can get Victoza for really cheap. Yeah. But um, as far as other, you know, medications in this, this class that have also done cardiovascular studies, um, the uh, Ozempic um, study was sustained six, and that also showed that um, patients uh, – could have some cardiovascular risk reduction if you look at the primary composite. Um, it, there, it's the way it was set up kind of makes it a little bit hard because it's really a non-inferiority trial. The primary composite was the only superiority piece of it, um, but it, there are some other larger follow-up studies planned and things like that. Um, but and it was one of the shorter studies, but at least you know we know that it's got a good chance of having some cardiovascular risk reduction. And then um, some of the other studies, like, for example, Excel trial with Xenotide ER, no risk reduction compared to placebo. So, right. But, you know, non-inferior, which to them was like, ah, oh, that's what that's why we did this trial, right? To make yeah. sure it was non-inferior. So they're all, all happy for half a second. And then like, oh, shoot. So now we're inferior to A1C lowering. Right. And we don't have cardiovascular. That's a, right. that's a hard pill to swallow. Yeah, no but pun, they were kind of forced. No pun intended. They were kind of forced to do these these studies. And if you look at the the population, I mean, Excel had a lot. It was 14,000 patients versus some of the others were much smaller. Like Sustain 6 was like just under 3,000 patients. Yeah. Um, 
Not, the, not saying that a negative or positive for either, but I wonder what would have happened if it was more patients. Who knows? Yeah, for sure. Um, the uh, Elixir trial was the elixisinatide, and most of you are probably like, I don't really think I've seen much adlixin. That's because it also uh, did not have any cardiovascular risk reduction, and it was also inferior with A1C lowering as well. So we'll You might see it in a new-ish combination injectable, but then there's another one that's better than that either way. So <laughs> yes. you probably shouldn't see this one too much. Um, albiglutide, our friend Tanzium, that's been removed off the market, actually had a uh, decrease in cardiovascular events, but those were released after the drug had been off the market, so that was odd and, and kind of awkward. Um, it was driven mostly by a decrease in MI, uh, but that was called the Harmony Outcomes Trial. And then my personal favorite, the old Rewind Trial with Trulicity. Um, so this study I like, one, for because it was done over a around five-year you know, time frame, so it was the, one of the longer cardiovascular data studies, and uh, it also included the biggest majority. I think it was around 70% of patients um, in this were either low-risk primary you know, prevention patients, uh, whereas the other ones, the patients were at much higher risk for cardiovascular disease or it had a past history of cardiovascular disease. Which is similar to a lot of the benefit we even see with SGLT2s. Most mm -hmm. of it is primarily secondary prevention, Yeah, which is much easier to see cardiovascular risk reduction with secondary prevention. Primary with any medication is extremely difficult yeah. to see. So I definitely am a big fan of the the rewind um, trial just because it did show that the cardiovascular risk reduction seems to be very strong with rewind uh, with Trulicity. I even remember being a student. Um, we had a Trulicity rep that worked at a clinic, not worked, but was at this clinic a lot that I was working at, and I remember you know being annoyed by him because he's trying to push Trulicity, and I'm like, no, we need Victoza because there was no rewind data yet. Um, it's just funny how things change, and rewind had a good amount of patients about 10,000 mm -hmm. it's very solid absolutely um, the other uh, kind of thing to, to consider is you know if you're if you have a patient you know who has ASCVD risk they have diabetes that's uncontrolled you know, and maybe we have started them on metformin or we're about to start them for the first time on metformin if we are going to add a GLP-1 to that uh, you know kind of right off the bat or if they've been on metformin and we need to go and add a second agent then uh you know, really, it's not like there's there's anything wrong with starting them on any of any of the. I mean, there's obviously any of them are better than nothing. But my personal like thought process on the matter is with Trulicity, I, I like the ease of the device itself. Um, I know for a lot of my patients that I work with that are elderly, that that pen device is definitely pretty pretty genius and um you know the ozempic is also very easy to use uh, but the titration is a little bit harder um plus you have to do the uh, 0.25 milligrams for the four weeks which mm -hmm. is kind of sub therapeutic in a lot of cases whereas the uh, 0.75 milligrams of the trulicity for four weeks is therapeutic and i get a good bit of a1c lowering with even that first dose so that when they after they finish that first box you just give them the refill with the second dose and keep going from there with ozempic it gets a little bit more uh, difficult to titrate up and you have to make sure that the refills are on the one milligram box and not the initial starting pack or that can mess up insurance thing so that's the only thing i'm a little bit concerned about the ozempic with my patients but i definitely have have started patients on it for sure and if i need weight loss for a patient, Ozempic all day. Right. 
nothing's going to beat out that with when it, from a weight loss standpoint. So really, we have three very solid options. Victoza, Ozempic, Trulicity. Victoza being the once daily. And some people don't like a once weekly injection. Yeah. Some you people know, they, say they forget they if forget. it's once a week. So if they're already doing their insulin, maybe they can do their Victoza at the same time, and that's helpful for them. Absolutely. But Mike mentioned the pen devices. If time, I'll talk about it in a little, a little more detail later. But it is good to make sure with any of these devices that you start with um, to ensure there's a, a good understanding of how to inject them um, if only because if the patient accidentally misfires and you have to get another one, it's kind of a pain and they'll probably go, you know, a week without missing their dose because you might have to get an approval from insurance or get the company to send them a new one, something like that. So just make sure there's good understanding and to make sure that they're actually getting the dose and it's, it's being administered appropriately. Um, they all have their little nuances about how to use them, but in general, they're all sub Q. Um, they can be done in the stomach, the buttock, the top of the thigh, the top of the arm and the tricep area. Um, but yeah, um, it's, it's good to, I'll go into more detail if we have time, but ensuring proper understanding is important. So, um, the other thing that, uh, is not really thought about too much, I feel like is, you know, what kind of dose adjustments. So, um, with exenatide, um, the original Bieta, um, if a patient's creatinine clearance is less than 30, we do have to, to avoid that particular medication. Um, it, the uh, Exenatide ER by Durian has um, renal dose adjustments as well. Um, I believe that one's actually 45. I'm uh, double-checking myself since I'm <laughs> saying this into a recording. Yeah, so less than uh, 30, not recommended. And um, with immediate release, and it's less than 45 um, mils per minute uh, with EGFR for by Durian. Um, the ex- extended release version. So I don't, I don't know the last time that if I saw someone on Bredurian, I, I, it, I'd have to think about, you know, remembering to check their EGFR because a lot of times we don't think about that in these, uh, with these agents. You but know, I, I, we were dispensing the Bredurian B-size probably every other day or so. So even a fair amount. And um, yeah, I'm sure that people don't really consider that much because you don't usually have to think about kidneys too much with the GLP ones. Yeah. So for those two, just kind of be aware, but the Terrell City, the Ozempic, the Victoza, you're all good. No no renal dose adjustments, um, which is a very, uh, I like this chart that Pearls has because it lays all that out perfectly as well as the uh, titration of each one. And it's one of the charts that's included in the downloads. You can kind of have it all laid out in front of you in case you forget the titration uh, sh- strategies. Yeah. Um, the other thing I want to make sure we mention too, since we're on GLP ones, and I see this every once in a while, is you'll have a patient who was on oral therapy first. So let's say they were on metformin and then Genuvia, one of our DPP four inhibitors, and then when they are a can become a candidate, you know, for a injectable, just in my opinion, they would have been a candidate already. But um, let's say now you're considering them for a GLP one. Make sure you stop the DPP four inhibitor. You're not really getting any additional benefit from that um you know if you think about the pathway the the reason we give a dpp4 inhibitor is because that's there to block that enzyme that breaks down our natural glp1 and so if we are are giving the the inhibitor of that enzyme along with a synthetic glp1 that is made and synthesized to basically reduce the effects of dpp4 to begin with giving an inhibitor of our DPP-4 doesn't really do much good other than maybe cause more constipation and nausea. So make sure you stop that DPP-4 inhibitor and, um, you know, let's just go with the GLP-1s. We don't need both. Yeah, for sure. 
The the other thing that uh, I'll mention too, just briefly, is the A1C lowering abilities of GLP-1. Depending on which resource you're looking at, you know, a lot of times they'll say somewhere in the range of one to two percent drop in A1C. You know, I, I'm not a huge fan of describing A1C drops like that for the sole purpose of you know those those were the studies you know in the studies we saw those kind of drops in A1C. If you have a program that's a diabetes education program, uh, like so, for example, at my clinic where if somebody gets enrolled in our diabetes education program, they go through me, they go through the dietitian, they spend time with um, other healthcare professionals, and it's a completely like en- encompasses all the different aspects of their education to deal with you know all aspects of their diabetes. I get huge um, drops in A1C from like Trulicity, for example, or Ozempic. I mean, I've had patients go from the teens down to like an A1C of um, low sixes to where we were stopping the GLP-1 after that. Uh, just because, and that was over the course of like three or four months. So kind of when you're looking at those types of things where you have like, you know, this set A1C, I don't want you to get confused and see that and say, oh, well, you know, if the patient's A1C is an 11 now and we had a GLP-1, we're only going to get to a nine. That, that's if you give them the medication and then kick them out the door. Do some education, get them enrolled in diabetes education or with a dietitian and have them change some of their lifestyle things, you will get tremendous A1C lowering as long as the patient makes those changes. Right. So. If you hand them the pin and leave them to their own devices, you'll probably get what uh, the, the 1 to 1. 1.8 or whatever yeah. it says. But yeah. Absolutely. So. And I will say that um, back to the DPP-4s, if you look at like inserts, even LexiComp will have a disclaimer now that says there's due to lack of um, added glycemic benefit, don't give with a DPP-4 basically. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and we mentioned side effects before, but always good to counsel about nausea because if a patient starts it, they've got their first dose, they're really nauseous, they might just stop it again. But if you tell them that it's uh, self-limiting and transient, um, then they're much more likely to continue on it. And diarrhea as well, sadly. Yeah. And uh, I can't remember if Cole mentioned this earlier, but uh, if a patient has a history of pancreatitis, then we tend to not start a GLP-1. Right. So there's not too much monitoring that goes um, into them, but you know if their triglycerides are super high, pushing 500, might be a, a good thing to keep an eye on if they're on one of these. And uh, diabetic gastroparesis is the other one that I tend to forget about until I'm thinking, you know, I'm looking at a patient's chart because the, uh, you know, patient has gastroparesis from uncontrolled diabetes. The the gastric, the decreasing gastric motility and the gastric emptying that you get with the GLP-1 can make that gastroparesis worse. So be aware of that. You're not supposed to use a GLP-1 in that aspect. Um, anything else as far as that we need to touch on that? only thing I was going to say is um, just as far as the most recent ADA guidelines go, they also talk about combination therapy. Like you can start a patient on metformin and then kind of step-wise go to a GLB-1, um, but they say it's completely reasonable to just go ahead and start them both if you want to, mm-hmm. um, and uh, they w- will probably see more benefit, and because the majority of patients are going to have to go to um, the, the second one anyway, slash... Uh, cardiovascular benefit from a GLP-1 and that sort of thing. So combination therapy with metformin and GLP-1 to start is is not a bad thing. Probably a good thing. The, and the way I actually word that with patients, because a lot of times I'll have a patient referred to me after they've just been recently diagnosed, their primary care provider will put them on uh, metformin, and then they come see me like a few days later to do the rest of the education piece or adjust meds. And it's it's hard to tell someone who went from no medication to 
now they have diabetes and they're just trying to process all this. So my personal way of kind of referencing it to the patient, um, one, I, I kind of get them by, bought in ahead of time, whether you want to call it motivational interviewing or however you want to do that. I always kind of ask them. Motivational mic. Yeah, Go on motivational some, mic something on. like that. Um, but, uh, I get the patient to, to bring up the fact that their goal would be to get off medication because 95% of people are going to say that. Um, so most of them, you don't even have to kind of lead them that way. They're, they're going to bring that up that they want to come off medicine eventually. And so I use that to my advantage and I basically will tell them, Hey, you know, when we look at studies, the, the more aggressive we are in the beginning, um, in the better control we get of your blood sugar quickly, the um, quicker and more likely chance we have to decreasing therapy as we go. So I tell people I'm a little bit more aggressive with how I do things in the beginning. Um, but my thought process always going forward is to reduce those number of medications so that you're not on as many, you know, med- meds in the long term. So I'm like, if you bear with me and just trust me in the beginning, plus you, you know, do some of the diet changes and stuff that the dietitian tells you, we'll be able to get you off some of the stuff um, in, in most situations. And I feel like that helps a little bit when you tell them the long term goal is to get them off of therapy. I think that kind of helps them buy into your point a little bit yeah for sure i think the only other thing we didn't mention is we talked about we go v the um, weight loss semaglutide there's also loraglutide weight loss um, a higher dose uh, and it's branded as saxenda uh, which was kind of the precursor the first glp1 that was just approved for weight loss and now i think we go v um will put them out of business well, well technically they're the same company yeah same company <laughs> But that's the way to do it. Put yourself out of business and have the just, next product that beats you. Well, in. that's how Novo Nordisk does it. They're like, yeah, we have a drug. But we're going to make one that beats that other drug. They're, they're good at GLP-1s. We'll give them that. Them yeah. and Lily. I'm big fans. <laughs> All right. So let's talk about some insulin. Let's do it. So once we kind of have a patient established on a GLP-1, uh, or if maybe a GLP-1 is not appropriate for that patient, or maybe they don't try, they saw a commercial about pancreatitis, and they're like, nope, not using one of those. I only want insulin. Um, okay, that's cool. We can definitely go that route. Um, so typically speaking, when we are starting a patient, uh, who, who is type, you know, has two type two diabetes, we're going to start them on a basal insulin first. Um, we're not going to usually jump to basal and prandial dosing. Now there are some situations where maybe we would do, um, you know, like an MPH, uh, insulin in some cases to start, or some people I've seen start like 70, 30, it's much easier to get control of their sugar. If you start a basal insulin first, um, as long as they can afford it and have access to the, the medication itself. Um, so there are definitely a few, uh, options available as far as the, uh, long acting insulin. So we have like insulin glargine, which is our Atlantis. Um, we also have the, the, um, term follow-ons, which is the, like the basiglar and the semgly. Um, and then we have our, well, cause we can't call them bio- biosimilars in the, U- the U S that's like a different di- definition. So it's called follow-ons. I think is the correct, the correct terminology, if I remember correctly. And there's also Traceba, which isn't a follow-on, but uh, no, it's a brand new, it's more <laughs> concentrated. Um, you mean, uh, Tejeo. I mean, Tejeo, Tejeo. Yeah. The, that's version. the U300 insulin glargine. Yep. Um, we also have um, insulin degolytic, which is the uh, Traceba, um, and then we have the insulin uh, Dedimir, which is Levomir. Um, now, I will say with, with Levomir, um, you know, all of these are considered long-acting, um, and in fact, dulaglutide is really long-acting, and the duration... Ultra, as they say. Yeah, ultra-long-acting. The duration can last up to 42 hours, really, so that one has um, got a very long duration of action. The glargines are usually going to be around 24 hours. Um, now with uh, Levomir, it 
depending on the person, you know, I, I usually kind of round it to or average it to around 18 hours. Um, so you'll see Levemir's dose split sometimes. Um, but uh, I'm not as big of a fan of Levemir just because I feel like it's harder to get more um, well-rounded coverage um, with Levemir compared to the other ones. Right. It, it, it seems to act more like a, a peaks and valleys type of mm-hmm. insulin versus the Glargine and the Degladec, which are very stable and, you know, remain the same throughout. Um, and there actually has been some there one small study that looked at um, Degladec versus Glargine. And for the most part, they were very similar, but they actually did say that Degladec had lower risk of um, nocturnal hypoglycemia, mainly because of how long acting it was. Well, and that was the big concern with Traceba was, was it, is it going to be like insulin stacking associated right. with it? And so they were actually thinking that it was going to cause more um, hypoglycemia or a higher risk for that. But unfortunately, study, or well, not unfortunately, unfortunately for the other guys, right. um, they did not it's see that better. in the study. Yeah, it's actually better. And, and I've seen that myself too with my patients. Um, when they switch to Degladec, I've had less instances of hypoglycemia and, and whatnot. So yeah. It, uh, it is definitely a, an effective option. And I did want to say one thing about insulins in general before we get into the rest of them, but um, a lot of times, you know, Mike mentioned people might want to do insulin instead of a GLP-1. In a lot of cases, people really don't want to do insulin because they've seen a family member who's been on insulin or they associate it with, you know, um, poor outcomes or like the end of the disease or people who were, you know, um, have had diabetes for a really long time. So they have a bad association with insulin. And so you might ask them, you might say, okay, so, you know, what, what, how can we motivate you? Like what, what would motivate you within like your, this disease state and diabetes and what motivates you to get your A1C down and lose weight? And a lot of them might say, I don't want to go on insulin. And so it's really tempting to just tack onto that and, you know, they're motivated by that. So, okay, let's do this. We don't want to go on insulin, but it is important to early on kind of set expectations and say, well, you know, insulin is, it's not necessarily, it doesn't mean you've done anything wrong. It's not a punishment. Like we don't, we shouldn't threaten them with, oh, you know, you got to lose some weight or you're, you're going to go on insulin or something like that. You want to promote a positive attitude, say that, you know, we have options uh, that we are, we want to use before that, but there are times when um, the people, the patients just have to be on insulin and that's what they're, they're going to need to be on. So we don't want to vilify it uh, early on. Otherwise we'll, we'll probably have poor outcomes or poor adherence or whatever later on. And, you know, I think also too, it's important to kind of address the fact that when patients have loved ones that they've saw kind of have bad outcomes with insulin, the fact that a lot of times it's because they've waited so long to actually get on insulin right. that, you know, that's really the reason, and I've actually explained that to people, you know, the reason why sometimes it looks like insulin is the culprit is because we've, we've waited so long trying all these other things that aren't as effective when we could have gotten control of the blood sugar early on anyway, and then the patient may have actually had less kidney disease and other, you know, things that can happen as a uh, consequence of long-term uncontrolled diabetes. Right. But, so. but like we said, there are, there are negatives about insulin with weight gain and more hypoglycemia and that sort of thing. But overall... Um, it can definitely get control of the sugar because you can titrate it to whatever amount you need it to go to. Uh, but an injection technique is definitely important with this as well. Um, for It's interesting that this is mentioned in the guidelines, but for a leaner, kind of skinnier person, it's mainly with type 1, but um, with a leaner, skinnier person, if you're accidentally injecting too far into the muscle or using the wrong needle size or something like that, um, you can get an increased risk for hypoglycemia because in the muscle it doesn't really absorb as... Um, um, dependably, it's kind of more peaks and valleys sort of thing, even for the long-acting insulins. Um, so injection technique and making sure people are using the appropriate size needles 
can be important to, to help prevent those sorts of things. And I mean, as a kind of a generalization, most people have a little bit more um, adipose uh, tissue on their stomachs compared to their legs, to the back of their arms. Right. And so that's why, you know, you can inject them and in those other alternative sites, but I'm definitely someone that encourages patients to use the abdomen if possible. So what about starting dose for uh, basal insulin? Yeah, so there's um, various ways that you can kind of, you can come up with something very easy to start with and then titrate up. Um, the guidelines specifically mentioned 0.1 to 0.2 uh, milligram or units per kilogram per day is a reasonable place to start. Some people, if it's Lantus, just start with 10 units, uh, but there's other calculations you can do as well, right? Yeah, there's, so you can, one other one you can do that's pretty common is a fasting blood glucose. Uh, you take the patient's you know, average fasting blood glucose minus 50 and then divide that total by 10 and that equals the number of units. That's a lot of math for me. I like the point one to yeah, point two a, units. Well, I like the ten units and then titrate. Yeah, ten units and titrate up. So I'm a I'm a big believer in that one. If the patient is willing to check their their blood sugar, you know, at home and, and check their fastings, because what I I'll do is I start. Usually I'll go up a little bit. I'll do the math to see what their starting dose would be based on their weight, and then I take that and average it with ten, and mm -hmm. somewhere in the middle is where I personally. Right. And then, you know, I'm sure that their, um, I don't know, motivation or how reliable they are will determine uh, if, if they can self-titrate. Right? Absolutely. If, you know, if, if, if you feel like they can check their sugars regularly enough to self-titrate two to three units, depending on how high their sugar is, or if you're going to have to titrate it yourself and, and follow up with them closely. And when Cole says self-titrate, you know, what we mean by that is basically they, they titrate themselves up one to three units, like you said, every, um, usually I, I personally do every three days. Um, and so if there are A1s, there are blood sugar, rather, the fasting blood glucose in the morning is not in that 80 to 130 range. Um, for three days in a row, it's, it's above that. Then I have them add one to three units, depending on how high their A1C is to start. And then they do that for three days. And then if that's not enough, they add the one to three units that I told them ahead of time after another three days. And they just basically um, slowly work their way up until we can find the dose that's perfect for them, as opposed to... Do 20 units, I'll see you back in a month. You come back, their A1C is still high. You go, okay, now do 30 units. It gives it, it makes it a little bit more specific right. to that patient um, and lets them kind of have control over it as well. Now, I don't do that with every patient by any means. I definitely will, I'll call patients over the phone and just adjust it based on their numbers myself. Um, but there's definitely patients that are more than comfortable in, with doing it that way. And it sounds, you know, somewhat confusing versus just take one tablet once daily or whatever, but it's really just one line on the pen. They see that if it's, still above this you know, 180 number or whatever it's going to be just tick it up a couple extra you know? yeah and, and i tell people you know that's your new dose at that point once right. you see that number coming down make sure that they because i've had some patients that'll they'll go up and then once they get to that number then they go back down to whatever the the box said to do and then they're they're like right. oh my sugar's not controlled again right so now we yeah. get you a new prescription with the with the new dose yep. when, when it's time but yeah so um, that's the the basal insulin, and you know I'm a big believer in using basal insulin to control the fasting, and then the GLP ones to control the postprandial. Um, the uh, the kind of prandial insulin is something I try to save for last line in in most patients. Um, if the basal insulin is not an option um, for whether it's cost or whatever the case may be. Uh, there's also the option of doing a bedtime dose of NPH, mm -hmm. which is going to last around um, 12 hours or so. Um, you could also go to a twice a day NPH if you wanted to. Um, and now as far as the cost goes, because this actually applies for the GLP ones as well. There are so many patient assistance programs out there. It, it's kind of ridiculous. If you look, 
um, you know, Lilly, uh, Nova Norris, they all have those companies or they all have programs that if a patient doesn't have insurance or they're low income or they've lost their job or whatever, they will get you the medication for free. Um, some of those programs last an entire year. Um, they have copay assistance cards if they do have insurance. There's lots of different ways that we can get them on these medications. And say know? the insurance, so there's a couple ways, right? So say they have insurance, but the insurance won't cover it. All you have to have is maybe a, den- a couple of, you try an appeal. You appeal it, you get a denial. So you have a PA denial, an appeal denial, and you submit that um, to the um, patient assistance program. They call the patient, do some income verification, bada bang, bada boom. They've got free drug for a year. Yep. It's, it's to, I think that's the, I hear prices of number one thing that people say against these GLP-1s, and I I really think it's because a lot of people don't realize how many options there are for people. And it takes effort. I mean, it takes some time. So leverage leverage your support staff. You definitely can't do it all on your own. Or if you have a clinical pharmacist, that's a great job for them. I was going to say, if you are the clinical support staff. If you are the clinical pharmacist, you should do this. But if you're a provider, then leverage your support staff because you're seeing 30 patients in a day. You know, it's, it's hard to... Oh, you're not going to be able to write an appeal. It takes 45 minutes or whatever. Right. So, yeah. So um, that's our, our basal insulin. And then, uh, like I said, we could potentially use MPH at this point. Um, but uh, if the patient is on basal insulin and their A1C is still elevated, they're on a GLP-1, um, or if they're not a candidate for a GLP-1 and their A1C is still up there, then we got to decide what we're going to do with prandial insulin. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that uh, I kind of get a little alarmed with when I see when someone starts prandial insulin and they just jump right to three times a day dosing with someone who has type 2 diabetes, Um, that can definitely do an increased risk of hypoglycemia Mm -hmm. big time. So, you know, one of the things that I'd recommend is basically starting, not just me, this is the ADA too. I shouldn't yeah. say, that sounded stupid. Um, one of the things I recommend when I'm talking to my providers is what I'm actually getting at, not me writing the ADA guidelines. <laughs> but um, We could, maybe they should ask us next time. I don't think they want our help. <laughs> we, can, we can put it out there, I think we'll get rejected. But um, adding, It would be much shorter. Oh, yeah. You know that executive summary? Uh-huh. Too, that, long. Yeah, too long. Too Way long. Way too long. <laughs> it's got to be one page max. <laughs> but, um, you know, the prandial insulin, when we add that on, um, it should be one dose to start with the largest meal um, or at least with the meal that has the greatest postprandial glucose excursion is the terminology the ADA uses. Um, and so that's going to be a way of kind of figuring out where we need to go mm-hmm. um, from there because then you can add on the second and third meals. But... Um, you know, it's something that we don't need to jump right to three times a day because a patient doing four injections a day who doesn't necessarily have to is going to be um, very hard to come, you know, make sure that they're being adherent and all that. And starting aggressive, like we talked about earlier with metformin and GLP ones, is different than starting aggressively with insulin because they are much lower risk for hypoglycemia. Insulin's mm-hmm. much higher risk for hypoglycemia. So better to, you know, to a reasonable extent, start low and go a little slower. Yeah. And there's a few different ways you can initiate it. Um, some people will say to do like four units um, to start with that largest meal and then go up from there. Um, other people will say to do 10% of the basal insulin dose. Uh, I would be more of a four unit kind of guy um, just to play it safe. I always kind of with insulin. Easier math. Air, air on the so Yeah, I'm better. Yeah, four. <laughs> It's problem solved. Just do four. It's, yeah, the 10%. What? <laughs> and so I always side on the. Uh, or err on the side of caution when it comes to insulins. I, I go less than just am quick to titrate versus go big or go home on the first first dose. Right. But um, you know that's and then from there you can titrate 
you know, one to two units or, um, or 10 to 15% twice weekly is what the ADA recommends. And then, uh, kind of go from there. And as far as the basal insulin options, we have Lispro, which is Humalog. Prandial insulin options. Yeah, sorry. Prandial insulin options. We have Lispro, which is Humalog, Aspart, which is Novalog, Glulacine, which is a a, a Pidra, um, and then Afriza, which insulin regular, that's the inhaled insulin, right? Yeah. That's, I've never, I can't remember the last time I've seen that. I've never seen it. Yeah. But it exists, which is a nice little trivia question. Yeah. Can you inhale insulin? Sure. Sure. They're also working on oral insulin, but that's we'll cover that another time. Yeah, it's in stage. Well, Mike, I think this is the injectable one. episode. Yeah, sorry. Can talk about that. Listen, I, you were a bad influence with your with your semaglutide talk <laughs> with my rebelsis. With your rebelsis. Um, so you mentioned, the, and then also there's some some follow-ons as well. So I don't know if you did you mention Admalog? No. Um, so that's another version of insulin Lispro. Um, that's that's a uh, the same. You know, just another version of that, basically. Um, we also have uh, Fiosp, which is insulin aspart, but it's actually faster acting. Um, it's got uh, nicotinamide added to it, and then it's sometimes you'll see it listed as being ultra rapid acting. Um, so it can kind of get into your system even quicker than the other um, rapid acting insulins do. Um, and then we have uh, another Lispro that's. Um, uh, a little bit faster acting. That's the uh, Lyungev, I think is how you pronounce that. Um, and uh, I can never, ever since that came out, I can never pronounce that correctly. It sounds like, um, I don't know, a Swedish word or something. Lyungev. Lyungev. Um, but that one's considered to be a little bit more faster acting, kind of like the Fiasp. Uh, but yeah. I think I think I bought that dresser from Ikea. Lyungev. Lyungev? Yeah. Did you? Yeah. That's interesting. <laughs> Good to know. Um, but, uh, you, you know, if, if the patient doesn't have insurance and they're, they're, you know, the, the cost of it is the biggest issue. We also have our regular insulins as well that are shorter acting. So they're not going to have as quick of an onset as the rapid acting, um, insulins, but we have like Novalin R, Humulin R, um, that are going to be, uh, options. They're usually a little bit cheaper. Um, they usually take 30 to 60 minutes to really get in your system versus the rapid acting is about 15. Um, so maybe the timing's a little bit more important there. Um, but like we said earlier, there's so many different patient assistance programs. It's fairly easy to get somebody on one of the rapid acting brand name medications, um, versus making them use a vial of Novalin R still. Yep. Um, stacking can be an issue with these, which is like, um, injecting maybe too often, which patients might do if they are concerned about having side effects from hyperglycemia or something like that. So emphasizing that sticking with the appropriate dosing regimen, um, because if they're injecting too early, the insulin can stack. They have higher levels than they should. Increased risk for hypoglycemia. I think the the insulin regular is a little higher risk for that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then what if what if a patient um, they they're injecting at night or their numbers are regular at night, but they're waking up in the morning and their glucose is like skyrocketed? Why would that be? So and and this uh, this comes up. I've seen this multiple times. And and even patients who they're checking. Um, at one point during the day and their, you know, their, their numbers look good, but then their A1C just does not reflect that. Um, but a lot of times the big thing to kind of be aware of is when they're on especially multiple doses of insulin is, are they having hypoglycemic events? Because a lot of patients, when they become hypoglycemic, they are not 
following the rule of 15s where you 15 grams of sugar wait 15 minutes people are like i feel horrible i'm about to eat some Where's freaking the sugar give me you know i remember i had uh, one one guy that i've seen when i was working with the city of charleston um doing consult stuff for diabetes education and uh he, he told me that i asked him what he does when he has a low because he's having lows all the time he he goes oh man i keep a king size um snickers by my bed and like one of those larger bottles of uh coca-cola and he goes i eat that thing so fast and then i down the coke to and I was, he's like i feel better so quick and i said yeah how your sugars look in the morning he goes oh they're through the moon <laughs> so it's like yep so let's go ahead and adjust your insulin dose at, at bedtime or at least with your meal um you know your your, your dinner dose of insulin because um, we want to make sure that we are not uh, causing hypoglycemia, especially in, like during the night, because they're going to get up and treat it themselves, right. and that can throw off their entire average for the day. So it can be from them treating it themselves. And there's also something called the Samoji effect, which is where when they're having lows, maybe they're unaware of it, they're still asleep, um, but their body recognizes that and releases a large amount of glucose during the night. And so when they wake up, they're having hyperglycemic um, excursions, yeah. as they would say. So absolutely, Samoji effect. Um, and then, you know, as far as the prandial insulins go, um, if you can use one of the rapid acting, um, those are definitely uh, probably ideal. Um, and I, we talked about the um, onset of action, but in my opinion, the the risk of having someone dose a insulin, like if it's a regular insulin, you know, 30 to 60 minutes before the meal, something could come up and they could you know, be interrupted and not have that meal. Right. Um, the rapid acting insulin, you know, it's really, I tell people that start, you know, they inject it right as they start their meal, but technically 15 minutes or less, that's going to be the way to do it so that you can ensure that the patient's going to actually sit down and eat that meal. Um, and I usually, like I said, tell people right as you start that way, I know for a fact, there's nothing going to be interrupting them and their risk of hypoglycemia is not going to be as great. Right. Another benefit of GLP ones. Cause like Mike said, it's, um, Glucose-dependent insulin release. No glucose, no insulin release. Yeah. One other thing with prandial insulin that I want to make sure we mention that drives me insane. Insane? <laughs> insane, literally, is uh, sl certain sliding scales. So if you're going to put someone on a slide and you put them on a slide that sounds something like this, which I've seen multiple times from like EDs and whatnot, if your insulin is 150 or less, then use zero units. Um, if or not your insulin, I'm sorry. If your blood glucose is 150 or less, zero units. If it's um, 200 to one or 150 to 200, use two units. If it's 200 to 250, use four units, and they go up. If a we want a patient's blood sugar to be less than 130, you know, 180 to 130 really before their meal, if if possible. That means that they're controlled. That means that the last meal that they ate you know, the medication that did its job or they followed their diet or whatever, we don't, you know, we don't want to have to correct necessarily. The slide is there to not only like adjust for the, the amount of carbs that they're about to eat, but also a, to fix their and correct their, their excursion that they've already been on. So if you're 150 and then you don't use any insulin with that meal, that's how you get huge postprandial spikes so the next meal it's going to be through the roof and then you have to use your slide right. and then go from there it throws the whole thing off have a set number of units that you're going to use with the meal that's going to cover the actual meal and then you can use the slide to then adjust and and kind of account for correct however you want to say it for um, the blood sugar excursion that they're having before the meal as well right. so that's where it would be like four units with every meal or with you know 
dinner or whatever. And if, if uh, your blood sugar is 150 to 200, add two units to that. So they would do six total instead of just four. That way you've corrected the, um, the, ins- the, the blood sugar that's elevated and are also accounting for the carbohydrates that they're about to eat. And I'm sure the thought process, like, for example, with the 150 or less, don't use anything, is they don't want people to have hypoglycemia. But if they're about to eat... They're yeah. not going to have hypoglycemia. Exactly, and if they're and yeah, and if they're if they're going to eat and there's any kind of carbs, especially if they're having literally a, a salad with nothing on it, maybe then you know we would be a little bit more cautious. Not that many people go that route, right? And then we could just use a GLP one, so we don't have to worry about that. Don't even have to worry. Yeah, because then you know. So yes, this is what we're talking when you get to the point of needing insulin. Yeah. yeah. So there it is. What else, man? Anything uh, in particular that we've left off? or That's some good stuff. The only couple things I wanted to mention is that um, they do have... So we've been talking about GLP-1s and insulins the whole we've time. Al- we've also both said a couple things I want to mention. We've mentioned a hundred things, and we've we've prefaced each time with... I want to mention a couple okay, things. Okay, here's literally three more things I can think <laughs> okay. of. Okay. Exactly three. Um, they they do have combined them now, right? So there's a combination. Um, one of them is called Zoltify. I actually did my grand rounds on this. Um, but um, it's insulin degladex, so traceba mixed with uh, liraglutide, which is Victoza, which both are pretty solid drugs. Um, you know, Victoza's once daily, so you can give it once a day with the, the insulin. So this would be covering your basal and then covering your GLP-1. So interesting. Not a bad option. You don't see it much. Um, but, you know, to decrease an injection burden, not a bad option. There's another one called Celiqua, which is insulin glargine, which is Lantus, which is fine. But then also with Lixazinatide, add Lixin. Um, so definitely if I was going to use one of those combos, I'd prefer Zoltify, um, just because we don't prefer Lixazinatide as the GLP-1 of choice, but Victoza is a fine option. Uh, but of course, you're not going to see one of these combos with one of the once weekly GLP-1s. Um, because at this point, at least, we don't have a once-weekly insulin. Though that would be nice. Yep. Um, I'm sure it's coming. But yeah, those are two other newer options. I've actually seen Soliqua quite a few times, um, but I have not... Oh, no, I did have one patient on Zoltify as well, Um, but not a whole lot. Definitely see just the plain GLP-1s or plain insulin a lot more than this, but later on, you know, in our careers, we might see this more often, just for ease of injection in our long careers we've got a while to go well some of us less than others <laughs> call us 10 years younger than me negative <laughs> something like that something like that but um yeah no that's good stuff um anything else before we wrap it up i think we covered every injectable there is <laughs> and someone, someone's screaming at home going no you didn't it was we, we didn't, got some we, i mean wigoti is was like this month we didn't really uh two weeks cover ago cover the 70 30 so no, we didn't. I will say just one caveat to that is if you are having someone on a seventy thirty, make sure that they take it before breakfast and before dinner, so they can get the benefits of the prandial component of yeah. that combination. Um, of so many people, I would say eight out of ten people that I ask how they're taking their seventy thirty, they take it in the morning with breakfast like they're supposed to, and the next one is taken at night before bed. Right. Take it with before dinner. There's so one can, intermediate and one rapid. Yeah. Yeah, one rapid. So well, you, there's a few different versions, but right, the right. like the Novolog seventy thirty, for example, is the rapid. So right. get the benefit of the rapid with taking it with the meal. Exactly. So yeah. Um also to make sure, like we said at the beginning, 
check out um, pearls.com. So that's P-Y-R-L-S.com slash core consult RX. Um, put in your uh, email address and they will send you a 10-page um, diabetes pharmacotherapy chart bundle that is yours to keep regardless of whether you ever use the app. Um, the uh, the founder of it, um, the, Dr. David Borkowski, is a, is a good guy. He's a he's really got a, a cool vision for how this is going to work out. So um, I'm a fan myself and uh, I'm glad he's decided to, to partner with us. So make sure you check that out and, um, you know, give, give that a shot. See what you think. Worst case scenario, you just, uh, you know, unsubscribe from his email. He, he's, he's, we'll be okay with that. I promise. Um, but, uh, just make sure uh, you check out that, get your free page, 10 page bundle. That way you can kind of follow along with what we were talking about a little bit better. Um, and then also, if you are a member of FreeCE.com, if you're not a member, you need to correct your path. And then if you are a member already, make sure you go to the link in the show notes and uh, use the code GLUCOSE, all caps, to claim your one-hour continuing education credit for this episode. And then uh, let us know if you guys are liking these continuing ed um, accredited episodes, if they're helpful, if they're if you're able to kind of follow along and feel like you're learning from them. I know me personally, I feel like I would do better with this type of format versus a lecture. I'm zoned out five minutes into a lecture, to be honest. So, um, you know, if you guys are liking it, we'd love to hear some feedback. If you have ideas for you know, episode content or anything like that that could be accredited, let us know. Um, if you want to email us, our, our emails will be in the show notes. We also will have, um, you know, our, our Instagram and all the other social media platforms are available as well in the show notes. So you can reach out to us there. You can text us directly at 415-943-6116. Um, and then uh, we'll get back to you on any of those as quick as we can. Um, we do tend to get a lot of messages nowadays, so I promise we'll get to you. But if it takes a couple of days, I apologize. Um, and then also thank you guys so much for those of you who have uh, subscribed on Patreon. I hope you're liking the lectures on there. And um, we got uh, a lot more coming in, in the pipeline for that as well. So I think we're up to um, around 80, maybe a little bit more than 80 lectures and probably thousands of slide sets for three bucks a month or subscribe once, download everything and then blow on out of there. There you go. You get $3 for thousands of slides. It's the deal of the century. Um, but yeah, thank you guys so much for the support and, um, we will see you guys in the next episode. Have a great night.